Good morning. Once again, this is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar, Dave's Corner, titled Health Embursement Arrangements, What an Advisor Needs to Know. A few things to keep in mind. The CE credits are available to California certified agents only as the courses are registered within the Department of California Insurance. It can also take up to two to four weeks for the credits to apply to your account. It is advised to participate in this webinar on a computer to show that you have attended. Lastly, for any reasons, if there are any issues with anything during the course of this webinar, please email me immediately at natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-C, at dickerson-group.com. Before I introduce today's presenter, I want to let you know that we welcome your questions. Please enter them in the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer them at the conclusion of this presentation. Today's presenter is Mr. David Fear Sr., a 40-year veteran of the employee benefits industry. Dave merged his organization, Shepler and Fear, with Dickerson and the Alera Group in May 2019. Dave's expertise and background are in the areas of alternative funding, benefit plan compliance, and group purchasing arrangements. He is the former president of the National Association of Health Underwriters and the 2015 recipient of the Harold R. Gordon Memorial Award from NAHU as the Health Insurance Person of the Year. So Dave, how are you this morning? I am great, thank you, Natalie. Appreciate that uh, introduction and uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, I hope wherever you're at today, you're cooler than we are up here in Sacramento, it's supposed to hit 110. So that's uh, gonna be a record for us this time of year. At any rate, uh, welcome to this uh, webinar and uh, we appreciate uh, all of you registering and uh, we'll, get, we'll get moving ahead here. Uh, I would like to say to begin that um, today's presentation is being co-sponsored by uh, obviously our firm, Dickerson Insurance Services and one of our new uh, partners, uh, the Employee Benefits Administration Management Team, EBAM, as I like to call them. And they're uh, uh, a third-party administrator involved in the administration of uh, HRA plans, which is, of course, what we're talking about today. So they'll have uh, an opportunity to uh, present a little bit more information about their organization a little bit later on. But uh, we'll go ahead and, and begin at this time. So I, I think the first thing I'd like to do is uh, begin with a, a little bit of a, what I'd call a quick history on HRAs and, and what they're about. Uh, health reimbursement arrangements, as, as I call them, or HRAs, uh, have been actually part of the internal revenue code uh, for many, many years. Uh, in fact, uh, back in the, uh, the early, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, when I first was involved in alternative funding arrangements, uh, the firm I work for was doing a lot of uh, Section 105 plan business uh, over the years with uh, groups of all sizes. What we, what we do know is that uh, in 2006, the Internal Revenue Code was amended and two specific sections, code sections, were changed and, and updated, Code Section 105 and Code Section 106. 
And what they formally did was there had been a challenge prior to that about the tax deductibility uh, for an employer who was sponsoring an HRA. And there was a question about whether or not that was a le legitimate uh, taxable uh, uh, de deduction. So the code sections were omitted, uh, sections 105 and 106 were omitted in 2006. And they formally made it clear that uh, employers who established these types of arrangements would have full tax deductibility as if they were uh, you know, paying insurance premium for a, uh, uh, a health plan for their people, the same deductibility for the expenses that they paid in an HRA. They also uh, referred to another type of uh, uh, entity referred to as a MERP or a medical expense reimbursement plan in the same uh, parts of the law. So, so HRAs and MERPs uh, became formally um, uh, uh, recognized by the IRS uh, at that time. As you all know, unless you've been uh, camping out on the, you know, the planet uh, Mars or Venus, uh, we had a major uh, change in, in the United States in, in 2009 when the Affordable Care Act was passed into law. And <clears throat> then in 2013, as the, the major part of the act uh, went into a place, um, uh, a number of new regulations were released by the, the Treasury Department and uh, that had a direct effect on HRAs. And one of these regulations indicated that HRAs going forward had to be tied to a high deductible health plan, an HDHP. And, um, and, and that was because of the uh, minimum value requirements of the law uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they, they felt like uh, you had to tie an HRA together with a uh, high deductible health plan that provided minimum value in order to meet the, the overall requirements of the law. So that was, uh, that was announced and, and made into effect in 2013. There were some follow-up um, uh, regulations that were issued by IRS uh, after that as well. Another thing, another important thing that came up, and it's, it's one that we'll talk a lot about today, is the issue of reimbursement of individual health plan premiums. Uh, prior to the ACA and after the 2006 changes in the, in the uh, regulations, uh, a, a number of employers were allowing for the reimbursement of individual health plan premiums as an, as an eligible expense. And there were parts of the law that indicated at that time that an IHP premium was uh, an allowable expense. Well, the, um, the Obama administration and the Treasury Department basically said, no can't do anymore. Uh, we won't allow that to happen. It has to be uh, group health plans, not individual premiums uh, uh, as, as an eligible expense. Uh, things kind of continued that way for uh, a, a few years. And, and finally, in 2016, uh, a, a bill was passed. It was one of the last bills that President Obama signed into law before he uh, left office. And this established what was called, what are called qualified small employer HRAs or QSE HRAs. These were established and could go into effect as of January 1st, 2017. And basically what a QSE HRA did is it kind of met the small employer community halfway on this issue of reimbursing employees for the cost of individual health plan premiums. 
So this was a big deal, and it was lobbied very heavily, I might add, by our friends at the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business. Um, so it went into effect, and we'll talk a little bit about these QSE HRAs. So that was the beginning of, of changes back to uh, allowing for individual health plan deductibility uh, through an HRA arrangement. And then, as you note, President Trump uh, took office in 2017, and for the first couple of years in office, 17 and 18, uh, he did. Uh, he instructed the uh, Treasury Department and the Department of Labor and other federal agencies to go out and um, uh, check out and see was there anything else that uh, we could do to change the law to allow uh, small employers uh, better uh, affordability of, of healthcare plans. And they came up with this idea of adding to creating two new types of HRAs, individual coverage uh, HRAs and accepted benefit HRAs. So IC HRAs and EBHRAs. And both of these uh, were created through uh, Treasury regulations, I might add, in uh, 2019. And then they went into effect officially January 1st, 2020. So they've been around for about a year and a half now. So as of today, there are there are effectively uh, four types of HRAs that are approved by law uh, in the United States. As I said, the HDHRAs, uh, which I also refer to as a group HRA, uh, the individual coverage HRA, ICHRA, qualified small employer HRAs, QSE HRAs, and accepted benefit HRAs, EBHRAs. And you can see, I hope you can see uh, this chart, which uh, kind of, um, um, you know, separates them. Now, I'm not going to take an hour and go through each point of law about these four different things. That's not what we're doing today. And instead, I, I want to provide you with a, a current uh, overview of what these are about. And then we're going to focus in on the group HRA model, which is still the most popular model out there. Um, so uh, as, as, as you know, as, you, as I just said, you know, the years that these were permitted, uh, you can see here. Um, but but here's where they begin to differ. First off, the issue of employer availability. Uh, a group HRA or an HDHP HRA is available to any size of employer. There is no minimum size or no maximum size. And for that reason, today, those employers uh, out there that have established an HRA, uh, and, and many have done this, uh, are, are all different sizes. Um, the uh, ICHRA is also available to any size of employer. The QSE HRA, however, is not. It's only available to someone who is not an applicable large employer. In other words, it's available to small employers, specifically those who are not considered applicable large employers or ALEs under the Affordable Care Act. So these are employers that have as a general rule, they have less than 50 full-time uh, employees on the payroll. And then the EBHRA is also available to any size of employer. Um, so then the next question is, well, do these plans have a group health plan requirement? And as I said earlier, in the case of an HDHR, uh, HRA, HDHP HRA or group HRA, uh, yes, uh, you can only offer that type of an HRA if the employer is offering a group health plan. It doesn't specify 
the type of group health plan or the benefits of the group health plan. It just has to be a legitimate group health plan, small employer, large employer, or even self-insured employer. Uh, but it has to be a formal group health plan. Uh, in the case of an H uh, ICHRA, no, there is no requirement to offer a group health plan. Same as a QSEHRA, no requirement to do that. In the case of an EBHRA, uh, yes, uh, you, it, it must be offered alongside of a group health plan. And, and I'm not sure I understand their thinking in this because EBHRAs are really not for health benefits, therefore, uh, non-health benefits or what I call ancillary expenses. We'll talk uh, a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, then, then there's the issue of individual health plan reimbursement. Well, as I said, under group HRAs, that's not permitted and it hasn't been permitted since 2013. The ICHRAs, they do permit that. In fact, that's why the ICHRA was created, was to reimburse employees uh, who purchase individual health plans. Same thing with the QSE HRAs uh, that allows specifically for individual health plan reimbursement. That's why that was created. And in the case of an EBHRA, no, uh, individual health plan reimbursement is not permitted through an EBHRA. <clears throat> What's about the annual benefit limit? It's interesting because in the case of both uh, the uh, uh, HDHP or group HRAs and the ICHRAs, there is no annual benefit maximum. That's determined by the employer. So you have some employers who set out uh, HRAs up there with uh, maybe $1,000 a year maximum benefit and $500 a year. And that's what they put in. I've seen other employers that have uh, $10,000 or more uh, annual benefit maximum limits. Uh, under the QSE HRA, the law for the QSE HRA specifically uh, limits the amount that an employer can reimburse for premium for individual health plans to $5,150 for a single and $10,450 for family coverage. And those amounts uh, change annually as they're indexed by the IRS. So that's the, that's the amounts as of uh, uh, 2021. In the case of the EBHRA, that also is indexed by the IRS and is currently limited to $1,800 a year, uh, the maximum reimbursement limit. Um, benefit percentage limit. This is the, the, the benefit percentage that the employer pays. Uh, he's going to reimburse, uh, for example, 100% of a person's uh, medical expenses or individual premiums up to a fixed dollar amount. So what is the benefit percentage limit? And those are all determined by the employer. They could be 100%, they could be you know, 30%, they can be 50, it doesn't matter. That's up to the employer. Uh, then the question is, what about what, what is a covered eligible expense? And, and this is an area that I think is, is very important that you uh, uh, remember today as an advisor. Under a group HRA, uh, the employer determines what is a covered eligible expense? And so what you see in the group market with HRAs are two, uh, two different uh, models. You have what's called the full, and for lack of a better term, I'll just call it the full network model, meaning that the employer says that any medical expense that is approved by the IRS under section 213D of their code uh, is an eligible expense under our plan. 
and that's the that's as broad as you can get. And and you can you can look up uh, Section 213D and and you'll see what the IRS has said over the years what are allowable uh, medical expenses that can be reimbursed. Um, then you have employers that take a, a more narrower view. For example, that employer might be offering a high deductible health plan from, from an insurance carrier or an HMO, and they'll say uh, only the expenses that are allowed under the insurance plan, the high deductible insurance plan or the uh, HMO plan that we have are eligible expenses under the HRA. And as you all know, there are a number of things that are not allowable expenses under a group health plan. They might have limitations or, uh, or exclusions of specific things that are not covered. And, and one good example is, is uh, uh, vision or uh, dental or chiropractic services may not be covered under a group health plan. And so uh, the employer can say, I'm only going to reimburse you for out-of-pocket expenses that are uh, uh, approved by the group health carrier. And so that's a more of a narrow uh, set of, of what's eligible. And then you have uh, other HRA plans, and, I, and these are becoming somewhat common, who are very specific. For example, uh, the employer might go out and purchase a high deductible health plan that covers you know, all the different uh, things that are supposed to be covered under the Affordable Care Act, but maybe it has a, a big deductible for hospitalization. And so what they'll do is they'll say, our HRA will reimburse you uh, up to say $5,000 a year for inpatient hospital expenses only, uh, or uh, maybe, maybe for generic drugs, but not for uh, brand name drugs. In other words, they can get very specific about what things they want to be a covered expense under their plan. So again, those are determined by the employer under a group uh, HRA. Under the ICHRA, uh, the IRS has something to say about this. And for the most part, the IRS limits covered uh, eligible expenses under an ICHRA to premiums for individual health plans, okay, um, uh, IHPs as we call it, and other certain uh, uh, specific medical expenses. And so, if you open up the regulations on ICHRAs, you'll see uh, a, a very specific list of, of what the IRS will, will limit that to. On the QSE HRA side, again, the employer uh, can determine what's uh, limited or not uh, in, in their arrangement. And then under the EBHRA, you have the IRS limitations similar to what the ICHRA does. These are the things that, that you can uh, allow for. Um, all of these plans, for the most part, are subject to ERISA, which is a federal law, ERISA rules. Uh, that's been the case with group HRAs for from day one. It was codified uh, officially with the Department of Labor that back in 2006 that these are subject, these are ERISA plans subject to ERISA law. Uh, that's true also with ICHRAs, QSE HRAs, and uh, EBHRAs. But uh, in addition to that, there are some other specific rules to each of those three plans that, uh, that the plans are subject to as well. None of these plans, just so we're clear on this, are subject to state law. These are federal uh, plans uh, under federal law, like a self-insured plan. They're not subject to um, 
regulations and rules uh, promulgated by the departments of insurance in the various states. One question that we always get a lot of is, can, can an HRA plan run alongside of a section 125 plan? And, and this is kind of interesting. Um, most of you know what a, a 125 plan is, the most popular version being a POP or premium only plan, where if there's a premium that the employee has to pay out of their paycheck, they can do so on a pre-tax basis. It's been around a long time and very popular. In the case of an HRA, group HRA, uh, it can be run alongside of a Section 125 plan. Now, remember, uh, up above is that the uh, employer must fund the HRA in a, in a group HRA. That's the employer funding that. So if you've got uh, an employee that's enrolled in an HRA and they're also paying premium out of their pocket for their share of the, uh, the payroll deducted premium for their share of the cost, that payroll deducted premium is not run through the HRA, but it is run through the Section 125 plan. So the employee gets the, the tax break. Uh, this is also true for an ICHRA. It is not true for a QSE HRA, but it is true for an EVHRA. And then uh, some other requirements of note here, and I'm, and I'm summarizing several hundred pages of, of rules and regulations here, so you'll have to, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, as I said before, uh, uh, employers must fund 100% of the cost of a group or an HDHP HRA. There are no employee contributions allowed. Um, and, and that's been that way from, from day one. Uh, with the case of an ICHRA, the employees must be covered by an individual health plan or by Medicare in order to participate in the ICHRA. In the case of a, a QSE HRA, it is limited only to individual health plan premiums only, not uh, to COBRA, not to Medicare, or ancillary coverages. And um, uh, that's, I think, one of the reasons why QSE HRAs have really not picked up popularity much since they were uh, became uh, into being in 2017, and why they were have been, for the most part, replaced by an ICHRA because it's, it's a little more flexible. And then over on the EBHRA side, the, the other note that I would give you is that this is limited to ancillary expenses and COBRA premiums only. So ancillary expenses being like dental and vision. Uh, it cannot be used for the reimbursement of group health plan or individual health plan premium payments. That's what, that's what uh, the ICHRA is created for. And it cannot be used for Medicare Part B and Medicare Part B reimbursements either. So uh, again, the EBHRA, just think of it as in terms of, it's just dealing with ancillary benefits while the ICHRA and the QSEHRA and the regular HRA are dealing more with medical benefits. Okay, so let me, let me move on here. <clears throat> so as I said earlier, we're gonna focus on the group HRA plans primarily because Number one, that's the most popular type of HRA out there right now. Uh, that's not to say that ICHRAs won't become more popular over time. They've only been around for officially a year and a half now. But uh, I will tell you if, you, if you go out and you talk about HRAs with employers, those that are doing this, the, the vast majority of them are doing group HRAs as I've, as I've described. And, and uh, again, 
These are typically high deductible health plans that are wrapped together with an HRA, a health reimbursement arrangement. They're operating under the rules that the IRS released back in 2013 under, under Obamacare. They're most popular right now with small and mid-sized employers. Uh, we see a lot of employers in the mid-sized area that have uh, adopted these HRAs, but we're starting to see a lot more smaller employers go this route. And they're the most, of all of the HRA plans, they are the most flexible in terms of plan design and funding. Uh, other than the fact that, you know, the employer has to pay the full cost of it, the employer can determine how, how much benefit he wants to provide and what percentage benefit he wants to pay, et cetera, et cetera, and what the eligible expenses are. Um, we'll also touch on the use of a, of a product called Employer Excess Loss Insurance, or EEL, and how that is now being used in uh, uh, HRA, uh, group uh, HRA plans. This is a product that was uh, developed through the surplus lines market in London with our firm. Uh, it provides employers with, uh, who have HRA plans with a predictable cap on their paid claims. And at the end of the day, it costs pennies on the dollar for the benefits that are, that are per, uh, purchased. There are some key things to, to know and realize about these uh, uh, HDHP HRAs. First off, they are qualified plans under federal law and they're fully tax deductible. And while the premium paid for the high deductible plan can be paid by both the employer and the employee, as I said before, the cost of the HRA must be paid 100% by the employer. Uh, in the case of a MERP, a medical expense reimbursement plan, that is not true. But in the case of an HRA, that is true. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, <clears throat> second is that the, the high deductible health plan must be of a minimum value under the Affordable Care Act, and it has to have an actuarial value of at least 60%. So it, it would be considered to be at least a bronze plan as we, as we call them today. But understand that an HRA can be wrapped around any type of insurance plan, not just a high deductible health plan. We have some, we have some clients that have, uh, uh, have platinum and gold benefit plans, and they're not necessarily high deductible plans per se, but they have put in HRAs around there to cover or pay for things that maybe there are limitations in that platinum or gold plan that uh, they want uh, to be uh, exercised for the benefit through uh, an HRA. And then, and then the third thing that I would mention is that again, uh, since it's subject to ERISA, the, the HRA plan cannot discriminate it has to be available to all eligible employees. You cannot set up an HRA for one class of employees and not offer it to another class of what I would refer to as full-time employees. That's not true if you've got uh, other uh, classes like seasonal or part-time or, or uh, uh, temporary employees who are not eligible for the group coverage. But if somebody is eligible for the group coverage uh, and uh, they put an HRA in, they're also eligible for the HRA. You can't exclude someone in that, in that same group. Uh, the HRA plan generally must file an annual form 5500 with the federal government. And the high deductible plan is subject to state insurance regulation, including premium taxes and different contribution and participation requirements. So, you know, you're buying a, you buy a high deductible plan from Kaiser or Blue Shield or Aetna or whomever, 
those plans, those high deductible plans that you're buying are, are regulated under California insurance law and uh, they, they have to play by those rules. But the HRA plan that you're wrapping with that high deductible plan is not regulated by the state. So when we talk about group HRA plans or HDHP HRA plans, I like saying group better, uh, there are three general types of plans that we see on the market. And there, there's always, you know, a variation to these, but as a, as a general rule, we see three different types of plans. The first one is what we call a front-loaded HRA. And a front-loaded HRA is a plan that has a first dollar benefit, which pays 100% of HRA benefits before any deductible or coinsurance applies. Uh, it's the most popular uh, plan, the type of HRA plan out there, but some people will tell you that it can encourage higher utilization. You know, if a person gets a debit card and it's preloaded with a, say, a $2,000 benefit, uh, you know, then they're going to use that card. Uh, however, uh, it's got the lowest administrative cost. It's a lot, uh, it's a lot less expensive to administer an HRA plan that is uh, uh, front-loaded using a debit card uh, as opposed to the traditional plan. Uh, the second type is what we call a coinsurance or a shared HRA. And, and again, this is also a type of first dollar benefit, but instead of paying 100%, it only pays 50 or 90% of the HRA benefits. So the, the, the covered person has a coinsurance payment that they would be paying uh, alongside of it, just like you would see on a, on a health plan uh, before any deductible applies. Um, these are becoming more popular because employers want their employees to have some skin in the game, so to speak, uh, as to the cost of services, which has which has the effect of sometimes tempering utilization. If you if you say you're going to pay, you know, our HRA plan is going to pay 90 percent, you're going to pay 10 percent, and then you have a choice between using an urgent care center at a cost of, of 50 bucks out of your pocket versus an emergency room at a cost of a thousand bucks out of your pocket, uh, it might make a big difference on where you go and get your services. So it does have the effect when you have co-insurance payments to have some uh, uh, lower utilization. However, uh, there's a higher cost to administer uh, this type of an HRA because you have to get a, a claims processing system in place with an administrator who's, who's literally you know, processing that claim like they would a, a regular insurance plan. So it requires uh, a little bit more administrative work as opposed to the traditional debit card. Uh, and there are some arrangements where you can actually uh, issue a debit card now and it pays 100% of the claim and then the third party administrator will turn around and bill back the uh, uh, employee whatever their co-insurance share of the claim would be. For example, uh, somebody goes and, and, and they're on an HRA plan that has uh, um, it has an 80-20 benefit. So they have a debit card and the debit card is smart in the sense that it knows what kind of claims it can pay, but it can only pay 100% of them. So the employee uses the debit card, it pays 100% of the claim, and then they get a bill back later from the TPA for their 20% share of that claim. And that's the shared coinsurance arrangement. And we see uh, we see this becoming a little bit more popular in the market. Finally, there is uh, what we call the deductible bridge HRA, 
which to me, uh, the best description of it, it works like a miniature major medical plan, which requires there's a deductible and coinsurance payment before any HRA benefits are paid. Uh, you know, somebody goes out and they buy a $5,000 deductible uh, with uh, uh, Anthem Blue Cross, for example, and then they put in an HRA plan that says you'll still have to pay a $250 deductible and then 30% coinsurance. Well, that's we call that a deductible bridge HRA. And so typically those, uh, those types of HRAs have a little bit lower utilization whenever you have upfront deductibles, uh, but it also has the higher administrative cost of the three types since claims are processed in a, in a similar way to a major medical plan. So that, again, I'm just giving you a, a general idea of when you're talking to your client about what type of an HRA plan that you want, you need to have a discussion about these three types. Um, if I'm looking at the cost of an HRA plan, I will tell you that you can divide the cost of an HRA plan into three distinct uh, areas. The, the cost that uh, the, uh, the employer would pay or the employee and the employer would pay for a high deductible uh, health plan premium, say a bronze health plan through ABC insurance. Uh, then there is the uh, cost of the actual HRA claims that are incurred and run through the plan. And then finally, there's an administrative cost of the plan, and it's generally the smallest part of the entire cost. So in a, to, to make this real simple, those are the, the, the three things that you should expect to, to uh, talk about with regard to costs. So let me discuss this issue of premium first. Again, the cost of a high deductible health plan is in theory supposed to be substantially less than a traditional plan. I mean, you know, if you look at the price of a, of a bronze plan and compare that to a platinum plan, there is a price difference. Uh, prior to 2014, under the old rating system that we had, we began to see the pricing of these bronze, of these high deductible plans start coming closer to uh, first dollar plans and it wasn't working well. But then as a result of the Affordable Care Act and the pricing arrangements that um, uh, carriers now have to follow, what we've seen since 2014 is that the rate difference between a, a platinum and gold benefit and a silver and or bronze benefit ranges anywhere between 20 and 45% savings in fixed premium. And it depends on the carrier, it depends on the geographic area, and it depends on the specific plan design. But as a, as a general rule, we're we've seen for the last seven years that there's still a pretty good price difference between a bronze and, and certainly a, a platinum plan, uh, less so between, say, a silver and a gold plan. Um, and then on the large group side, depending on the carrier, we're still seeing a, a 20 to 35 percent price difference between gold and bronze benefits. Uh, again, it depends on the carrier and, and uh, the demographics of the group, uh, what the premiums look like. But what we, what we do know is that the typical bronze benefit works well as a high deductible health plan, and it prices out more competitively. And we'll, we'll show you an example of this in a minute. <clears throat> Just as some carriers have specific high deductible plans that can be used for an HSA, some carriers also have specific high deductible plans it can be used for an HRA. Uh, this is good in the sense that just a few years ago, some carriers were prohibiting the establishment of HRA plans with their high deductible plans. And that has 
uh, since changed uh, dramatically. You don't have the prohibition that you used to uh, five, six, seven years ago. So, uh, but some carriers are saying, you know, you can use any of our plans with an HRA and others are saying, no, just these plans here that you can use for uh, uh, with an HRA. And then, and then the other component cost of premium I would mention is the optional cost of <clears throat> the employer who might buy employer excess loss insurance coverage, which uh, is minimal when compared to the cost of the entire plan. And I'll, I'll show you an example of that in a minute. Then there's the issue of plan administration. And uh, you know we, we have our friends from, from uh, EBAM uh, on today and they'll be talking a little bit later, but administration is an important part of, of this plan because number one, first off, you know, remember this HRA is a qualified plan under federal law and it's subject to non-discrimination, HIPAA and ERISA rules. I mean, you know, some of you are, are familiar with 401k plans, you know, I. Uh, as an employer, it's almost impossible for me to administer my own 401k plan uh, for my retirees uh, or employees for their retirement because of all the rules, regulations, and and reports that have to be done. And and it, that's growing true with a lot of health and welfare plans as well. So an HRA plan, as a general rule, requires uh, the use of a of a, a licensed, bonded, a third-party administrator. I'm not saying that self-administration is is uh, prohibited. Uh, it is an option, but we don't recommend it because of the regulatory complexity that these plans are now uh, put under. And the average employer who's out there making widgets, you know, he doesn't have people on his payroll who can handle this stuff. This is not something a, a payroll clerk can do. So uh, self-administration, in theory, it's an option, but in reality, it's it's not done very much on these HRAs. So more than 90% of the HRA plans that, that I'm aware of are administered by a licensed, bonded, third-party administrator. And, and, and briefly, these are the things that the TPA is expected to do. They, they're expected to process the reimbursement claims or, or uh, the debit card payments that are made using a debit card. Uh, they have to confirm eligibility of benefits with providers. They, they provide an ID card for the employee. He goes to the uh, the doctor's office and says, I want to pay my, my uh, bill with my using my uh, uh, debit card here or my HRA plan will pay this. Well, they're going to call and they're going to confirm, is this John Doe uh, legitimately covered under this plan? Just like they would any insurance plan. So the TPA has to maintain eligibility records and that's a, that's a big deal. Um, they have to provide both claim and financial reports to the plan sponsor and to participants under law. And it's important that you understand and know that, you know, how many small uh, employer uh, health plans, uh, you know, for employers of less than 100, do you get claim reports on? You don't. You just don't see them in California. They're required in some states, but they're not in California. And so with an HRA plan, that employer is going to get claim reports because they're, they're the plan sponsor and that's legitimately, uh, they're responsible for those things. Um, the TPA has to file reimbursement claims with uh, uh, the excess loss insurance company if they buy that coverage. The TPA should be filing the annual reports with the government, with the Department of Labor, the IRS, et cetera. Uh, the TPA generally has to generate plan documents, including the summary plan description and the summary of benefits and, and coverage under uh, the ACA. And, and we find in the market that there are generally two types of TPAs out there. There are 
specialty TPAs who only do uh, HRAs or FSAs or HSA or ancillary plans, COBRA uh, included. And then there are full service TPAs who do all of the things that a specialty uh, uh, TPA does, but they also administer self-insured health plans. They're, they're paying and processing medical claims. And full service TPAs uh, have been around a long time, but the specialty TPAs have, have cropped up over the last 20 years. And it's a, it's a real good uh, market for them because they, they can do these things generally less expensively than a full service TPA does, and they, and they do a great job. Uh, a TPA can provide a firewall between the employer and the employees when, when you're handling, uh, you know, private health information and other information about the plan, that's good. I mean, no employee wants to uh, learn about their healthcare claims next to the water cooler uh, because of information that's been distributed by some other employee internally. So having a, having a TPA uh, acts as that firewall and that's good. And, I'll, and I will tell you this, using the right TPA will make a huge difference in employee satisfaction because their experience matters. I've seen some TPAs who claim a lot of things, but they go out there and they do a, a piss poor job of administering plans. And all it does is piss people off. And at the end of the day, the employer goes, why am I doing this if I've got all these angry employees because their claims aren't being paid right or on time or things. So you have to choose the right TPA and, and, and work with them uh, and they'll make a big difference. And, and as I said before, the administrative cost is the smallest part uh, of, uh, of an HRA plan, but yet it, it might be one of the most important things because if your administration is done right, your plan works well and, and things happen, good things happen. But if it's not done right and people are upset and, and you end up paying out a lot of claims that you shouldn't be paying, it could be a, a nightmare. So having the right administrative partner is important. Let me talk about claims then, which is of course a, a huge component of the, the HRA plan. As I said before, the number of paid claims will vary by the benefit schedule. And, and HRAs are, are the most flexible plans available. They can custom design these doing lots of different things, uh, very narrow, very uh, full uh, uh, range of, of, of things. Um, we've seen benefit maximums typically ranging from $1,000 to $10,000 per employee or per family per year. Uh, benefit payments ranging between 50 and 100% for front-loaded or, or uh, co-insurance plans. Uh, the covered benefits, as I said before, can be limited to conform with uh, the same covered benefits under the medical plan that you're buying or to the entire uh, IRS code section 213D. Um, the IRS does require documentation of claims, including provider receipts or carrier EOB statements. And this is important because a lot of people thought, well, if I've got a debit card, the debit card takes care of it. But the IRS has come out and said, no, it's, it's not just the debit card. I mean, you've got to be able to show that this is a legitimate claim that, that um, you're, you're being reimbursed for. So a lot of administrators have now come up with these nice apps phone apps where you can take a picture of the claim and then it gets sent into the TPA and there's your documentation and, and everything works out well. About 50% of claims are, are processed under the traditional payment method where you incur the claim, you, you pay the full thing, and then you send it in to get reimbursed. And about 50% are now using what we call the smart debit card where 
the debit card pays the claim and and uh, and and you're done with it at that point. So that's that's how we look at claim components. So uh, and I and I realize I'm I'm getting short on time, so I'm going to kind of just run through this a little bit faster. But but when you're looking at the cost considerations, you have to consider these things. You have to consider what's the cost I'm paying for a high deductible health plan. What's the cost I'm paying for administrative services? What's the cost I'm going to pay for the claims under the plan document that we've done? And, and it boils down to four cost scenarios that, that we should consider, okay? The first cost scenario, the first off is we show, you know, what is the employer currently paying? In this case, this is an employer with 35 employees and 16 dependent units, so 19 singles, 16 families. Uh, and they're located in Los Angeles. Uh, they, they are offering a platinum slash gold benefit with a $500 deductible in-network, 80% coinsurance in-network, and a $4,000 maximum out-of-pocket limit for that plan. They, they've got some other bells and whistles there. But at the end of the day, that employer is paying $358,000 a year for 35 employees. And uh, that's, that's, that's serious money for a small employer. So it, it, they're spending 358 grand, and then they say, "Well, what does what does an, an HRA do for us?" So in this case, scenario one and two, the the employer uh, goes out and they purchase a bronze plan that has a $4,000 deductible, 60/40 coinsurance in network, and a $6,500 maximum out-of-pocket limit. Okay, that's the bronze plan that they're buying from their carrier. Um, for that bronze plan, they're their premium outlay just dropped from 358,000 down to $215,000. Okay, so that's good. That's that's some savings right there. Then they say we're going to put in a $4,000 uh, ma maximum HRA benefit per person, uh, two times that per family. So when you run the number of uh, singles and families together, you have 51 units with a $4,000 potential benefit, which means the maximum claim payments that could be paid out if everything went wrong that could go wrong is $204,000 under these two scenarios. That's the maximum. Um, this employer would, will, will pay $12,090 a year for administrative costs, which includes issuance of uh, a plan document, uh, ID cards, debit card, et cetera, et cetera, so that they've got a, you know, a legitimate deal here uh, that's being done by a third party. Uh, in this case, neither uh, in neither scenario uh, in, anticipates that the employer is going to purchase employer excess loss insurance premium, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But under this first scenario, we assume that if everything went wrong that could go wrong, if everybody got sick and 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 came up with a $4,000 maximum benefit payment, that employer could pay out $204,000. That's their maximum claims potential. Uh, we know that that's not going to happen. That would be the sickest group on the planet if that happened. But but you have to show that number because that is potentially what their liability could be. Uh, then we show in the scenario two what we believe the projected claims will be. And based on the plan design, based on based on the type of uh, uh, enrollment you have, et cetera, et cetera, we projected that this employer would actually spend about $61,000 of, of annual claims payments of projected paid claims. So when you add these all together, the employer says, okay, I'm, I'm spending 358,000 now, 
Worst case scenario, I could spend 431,000, which is 72 grand more than I'm paying now or 20% more. But you're telling me that the projected cost will be 288,298, which would be a 70,000 or about a 20% savings. So at that point, you know, the employer kind of looks at you as the advisor and says, well, well, I don't, I don't know, you know, how sure are you about these projected claim numbers, uh, just like you're uh, sure about that we won't reach the maximum, you know, where do we stand? And there, therein lies the next point, which is uh, you can have a discussion with the employer about the need for excess loss insurance. Uh, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I'll tell you simply this. It is a, it's a surplus lines product written through uh, underwriters in London. Uh, it's used to provide an HRA claims attachment point, which limits the employer's claims liability to a, a de predetermined amount. It's simple to rate, to underwrite, and to issue. And the contracts are issued on what's called a 12-month incurred and a 15-month paid basis, meaning that claims that are incurred in 12 months and then paid in those 12 months or the three months afterwards are eligible claims for reimbursement. This is not an aggregate stop loss. This is, this is referred to as employer excess loss. And so in this example that we have, we've got <clears throat> the employer has 204,000 of potential claims liability. He buys uh, excess loss insurance coverage, which then limits his maximum claims to 102,000, 50% of this at 102,000. And the premium that this employer will pay for that is $52.15 per employee per month for that coverage. So think of it as a kind of a type of aggregate stop loss, but, it's, but it isn't that. So that, that then brings us into scenarios three and four where, where we have the same cost factors that we had before, except that now the employer is gonna pay approximately $21,903 a year in excess loss premium. Uh, that will limit his maximum claims now to 102,000. He'll still have projected claims of 61,000. That, that hasn't changed anything there. But again, what the employer now looks at is that if my maximum, if everything goes wrong that could go wrong, I'll spend $351,000 a year, which is uh, a savings of, of $7,000 a year. It's, it's virtually about where he's at now. So he doesn't have anything to lose in that respect, but we still believe that his, his net projected costs will end up being 310,000 because he's now paying for excess loss insurance premium. And we're still believing that he's gonna have 61,000 projected paid claims. And that means his net savings will be about 48,000 or 13 and a half percent. Those numbers are, are pretty typical in the market today. We don't see a lot of uh, variation from that. So <clears throat> briefly, the pros and cons of this is that you know, as long as there continues to be a price difference between 20 to 40% between a platinum gold and a silver bronze plan, I think the HRA concept is making good sense. Uh, we see good things about the provider network seem to be consistent within the metal tiers in that the same full or narrow network providers are available uh, with uh, through an HDHP plan, just as they're available through traditional plan. And then HRA plan funding is flexible. When the employer who fully funds their HRA plan uh, can expect to get money back at the end of the year because the claim surplus that they funded for and doesn't get paid out 
belongs to the employer. Uh, some employers do what we call the pay-as-you-go method, which means it has improved cash flow. They only pay uh, the, the premium for the high deductible plan and the administration and the uh, employer excess loss coverage, but then they pay the claims as the claims come in, or then maybe they fund a, a small amount into a claims fund and then and then uh, replenish that fund. On the con side of things, um, you know, there's no question that the maximum worst case scenario of an, a high deductible plan may exceed the cost of a traditional fully insured plan unless they purchase some employer excess loss. Uh, and again, in, in that example that I just showed you, you know, the employer knew he was going to spend 358 grand with his with his uh, pre, uh, platinum plan that he had. And if everything went wrong that could go wrong, he would spend slightly more than that overall under an HRA. So if the employer does not believe in taking any risk, uh, this probably isn't going to work for them. And then the other negative thing that I will say is that some employers complain about the fact that, you know, because the, the high deductible plan and the HRA are two separate parts of the plan, the employee is issued two ID cards and they must learn to use them together. So I've got my ID card for Blue Cross or Kaiser or whomever over here. And I take that in, I show it to my provider, but I also show them my ID card for my HRA plan, which which reimburses or pays, you know, X amount. Some people find that to be uh, somewhat difficult. I just, frankly, I just put my two uh, cards in my, because I, I have this myself, I just put them in a little sleeve thing and, and keep them together. So <laughs> that's not an issue. Um, let me just briefly touch on broker compensation because, uh, I, you know, you're all, you're all licensed brokers and agents, and, and I realize that, you know, that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, again, uh, we know from a carrier perspective, nearly all the carriers now offer high deductible plans that can be used for an HRA or an HSA. Uh, in many cases, they're the same types of plans. Uh, an HRA uh, will work with an HMO or EPO or a PPO or even indemnity plans, and, and we see a few of those coming back using reference-based pricing now. And it works in the small, mid-sized, and large employer uh, product market. So those carriers pay the brokers their standard commission. There isn't a reduced commission other than the fact that, you know, you're getting 5% off of, of uh, you know, $215,000 of annual premium as opposed to 5% off of $300,000. And, and so you could say, well, there, I get lower commission. Yes, you do, because the premium that your client is paying is lower. And that's, you know, what we're trying to do here is help them uh, lower their costs. Uh, the administrators that we work with, uh, and, and we've done some due diligence in recommending different HRA administrators, and in some cases, we've negotiated preferred pricing with them. Uh, all of the administrators we work with offer both traditional reimbursement and debit card claim payment arrangements, and all of the administrators that we're working with agree to pay a broker anywhere between zero and $25 per employee per month as a broker fee, if you would. And that uh, obviously makes up for some of the loss of, of commissions here. And then on the employer excess loss product, there is a 10% broker commission built into that product. I've already talked about what that product is, and, and uh, it does pay the brokers a, a modest commission. So these are, this, these are the way brokers make money off of selling these plans. So let me kind of uh, summarize and conclude this, and, and uh, we'll, we'll go into some questions in a minute. But... Again, I want to remind you the HR rules have changed. 
Uh, we now have a choice of four different types of HRA plans as of 2020. And while the new AIC HRAs appear attractive, they do end up putting employees into the individual market, which may be somewhat unstable in some parts of the country. Uh, but what employers are, are doing is that they're, they're using the HRA, IC HRAs as a class carve-out type arrangement. So, you know, I, I provide regular benefits to my full-time people, but I provide an IC HRA to my part-time or seasonal workers. And that, and that works out well because you're, you're able to do that class carve-out. Uh, group HRAs continue to price well in lieu of the, the ACA rating rules. Again, we see between a 20 and 45% savings in premium. Group HRAs have, have actually outperformed traditional plans over the past 10 years because when you take the employer retaining their surplus dollars, that helps offset rate increases. And we begin to see that that, that curve, that cost curve for healthcare spend is lower than what traditional plans have been like. And that has, that's been a good thing over the last 10 years. Um, the employers can be guaranteed a maximum uh, cost of their plan through the use of employer excess loss. And in most cases, uh, we find that employers can remain with the current insurer or health plan that they have and simply change their coverage from a traditional to a high deductible plan that can be wrapped with an HRA. So we don't upset people by you know, changing providers and a different network of, of you know, providers and hospitals and stuff. They, they stay with the, the plan they're on, the carrier that they're on, but they just change the plan design. So uh, before we uh, answer your questions today, um, I'd like to, I've, I've, I've asked uh, Dan Baker, one of our panelists to come on and, and just talk a, a few minutes about what EBAM is, is doing in this, in this market. Uh, Dan, are you there? Yeah, hi Dave, thank you. Uh, really great you presentation. Um, really love it, lots of great information. And, and you're right, we, uh, we really are, are seeing a, a lot of the um, HRA plans kind of focusing on that first type, kind of that general HRA, even still, um, as long as it's been around. Uh, here, at, here at EBAM, you know, we've been uh, self-funding plans for a long time, since 1974, starting with just traditional self-insured uh, benefit options and then moved through to HRA plans and even uh, ACA compliant MEC and MVP. But um, for a lot of you on the call today, what I think if there was one takeaway that I'd like for you to know is um, as far as when you're looking at a TPA to partner alongside um, your current customers or prospective customers in administering these HRAs, it's the TPA's ability to really take all of this information that Dave's gone over and to really help uh, present, present all of it in a clear and concise manner so that the story stays solid for your CFOs, your CEOs, your HR directors, um, really kind of keeping track of that of that equation, you know, what are you currently paying? What are you renewing to? What's the high, best high deductible health plan options? And Dickerson's going to do a great job of helping present what those are. What are your best, you know, 20 to 40 percent uh, vari variable uh, variance from renewal options? And then how can we come alongside you and uh, create a plan, whether it's through a smart debit card or a traditional uh, MERP reimbursement model? And really, you know, how are those numbers presented? How is that risk wind window presented? You know, what do we consider is more a more realistic worst case scenario? What do we project your claims to be? And I think kind of working within that structure is where um, us, you know, certainly 
we really feel like we do a really great job and kind of lead the market in our ability to keep that clear and concise, not only to help train um, a broker consultants team to be able to actively present and uh, present this and prospect using this concept, but also so that employers can actually make a decision. Because the reality is with all of these moving pieces, if they lose track of what the risk is, if they lose track of how claims are managed and, and kind of all the different moving pieces, um, it starts to just become too complicated. And at the end of the day, we all know that if we don't keep it simple, then they might just default to a traditional platinum, gold, or silver plan. And the reality is um, we're really excited that with our technology and the way that we run our proposals, we feel that we're as good as any, if not the best at uh, keeping it simple and helping you guys move forward with marketing these HRAs. So we appreciate you guys being on here and look forward to um, doing our part in any um, amount of follow-up alongside Dave and his team for any other questions you might have. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate your comments. Uh, Natalie, are you there? <laughs> do we have any do we have any questions? Yes, I'm here. And yes, we do have questions. Okay. Um, first one is, does an ICHRA plan permit reimbursement for Medicare premiums? Uh, yes. Next question. I would think that the administrative costs of the deductible bridge HR, it's not necessarily a question, by the way, it's more of a statement, but the statement is, I would think that the administrative costs of a deductible bridge HRA don't make it worthwhile for most clients. Any thoughts on this? Well, you know, there are some clients that really want to have a kind of a mini plan that looks like what they had before. And, and so sometimes it isn't the cost, it's, it's what do you want, what, what benefit do you want your people to really have? Um, and, and frankly, since with the enactment and, and the uh, development of these uh, uh, debit cards, these HRA debit cards that are smart cards because you can't use them to pay for non-medical types of expenses, okay? Uh, that has really helped streamline the claims process a lot better. But the problem is these debit cards can only pay 100% of the expense. They can't, they can't do, uh, they can't charge a deductible or a copayment or a coinsurance. Hence, the TPA would need, need to be involved to what we call backbill the person if there were in fact a deductible or copayment that needed to be assessed on there. So uh, the debit card makes it easy because it pays the provider right then and there and we don't have to worry about them anymore but it makes it harder for the TPA to uh, process the claim because they've got to go back and maybe collect some money from the employee uh, that they owe for their share of coinsurance. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a debatable point and, and I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. Dave, can I add to that? Can I add something to that real quick? Absolutely, Dan. Yeah, so, uh, just from what we've seen running all the proposals that we have, if you can get a high deductible health plan that is at least 20% variance from the renewal cost, then after it's all said and done, most likely, um, unless there's very low employer uh, contributions on the employee only, it's probably going to pencil out. Now the group's tolerance for risk will dictate to what degree that's going to pencil out and how, whether we're improving benefits from their current plan or just matching benefits, but most likely, as long as you get 20, 25% variance from renewal, it's worth running a quote. Now, if a group is on a silver plan, um, that's one of the least expensive already, or something worse, you know, bronze plan, then really you don't have enough room, like you're indicating, for 
admin fees and claims exposure for it to work. But the reality is we all know there's plenty of clients out there that are either fully funding HSA plans, we haven't talked much about that, or just still on a traditional fully insured product. And we always say, let us, let Dickerson, let us do the work um, and make the call and determine whether or not it's feasible. Next question. Isn't another con for the employee the limits on seeing a PCP before having to meet the deductible under a bronze plan versus any other metal tier? Well, again, it depends on, on the carrier and the type of bronze plan. For example, um, you know, there are bronze HMO plans which require you to use a PCP uh, in order to have services done, but there are bronze PPO plans and bronze EPO plans which do not require that. Um, <clears throat> the whole idea is the fact that, look, if I've got this $5,000 deductible and uh, and I've got a, a a benefit. Let's just say I've got a a four thousand dollar HRA benefit, and it's preloaded on on my debit card. Uh, it doesn't matter whether I have to go to my primary care doctor first to get a to get a uh, referral to see a specialist, or whether I can self refer to the specialist. Either way, the debit card is going to pay that expense uh, through the HRA arrangement. So really, that issue is more a factor of what type of underlying high deductible plan do you have? Yes, it's a bronze plan, but it is an HMO or a PPO. Do you, do you can you self-refer or, or must you go through a primary care doctor? I, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's the way I see it. Next question. Next question. Um, before I continue questions, um, we did get this question twice. Um, and yes, you can get a copy of the presentation slides. I, Natalie Cole, will be sending them to you directly in the form of a thank you email, which you should receive in the next 24 to 48 hours. But next question for you, Dave, is what administrator would you recommend for an ICHRA? Does EBA and M do them? Dan, do, do you guys uh, administer I, ICHRAs? We do. We're just now starting to. It's uh, managed through our debit card platform. Um, for the most part, you're you're just now seeing the broker consultant world starting to distribute that, um, and it's a little bit of a one-off product right now. But the answer is yes, we do administer those. And and I would say that we we have about four or five preferred TPA partners, and all of them have indicated and Dan just verified it, that, that they do administer ICHRA plans now. Thank you. Next question. Yes, this might be another question for Dan, but for the cost scenarios you shared, did you, did you use EBA and M's average TPA cost in the projection? We did not in this case. This was, uh, this was a group that we had that uh, contracted with a different TPA partner of ours. Next question. If the HRA plan is saving the ER 20 to 45% in premium, why would you just stick to an HRA and do away with fully insured plans? Well, remember, uh, you, you're not totally doing away with a fully insured plan. What you're buying is you're buying a fully insured high deductible plan. Okay. So you're still buying a fully insured plan from a carrier. But what you're doing is you're 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 reducing obviously your premium expense 
by, you know, between 20 and 40%, depending on the carrier, blah, blah, blah. And, and at that point, it, I, in, in my opinion, if, if I've got, and I've got dozens of employers that will tell you that this is the best thing they ever did because they saw an immediate reduction of their, of their healthcare spend. And then each year, they ask us to come in and present them a renewal proposal that also shows what their costs would have been had they stayed on their platinum or gold plan. And each year we track that information and, and they, they end up saying, you know, I'm never going to change again because my, my healthcare spending line is now, it's, it's still going up. Okay. That's, that's the cost of healthcare and health insurance in this country. And that's not going to change in the appreciable future. But, but it's not going up. It's not going up like this. It's going, you know, up like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a, um, we, we, we've kind of uh, bent the curve, if you would, of their healthcare spend. And that's why I think it's a better long-term solution for employers as a general rule. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's my take. Next question. Yes, the last question is, do you have any survey data that measures client satisfaction between traditional reimbursement versus debit card dash smartphone app reimbursement arrangements? You know, I, I, I can't say that I have uh, any specific studies that we've done on it. I, I can just tell you that, you know, in the, in the last 10 years that we've been doing a lot of HRA business, when we were Shepler and Fear and and got into this in uh, 2009, actually. So it's been 12 years. Um, e each year, when we sit down with our client and we would, uh, you know, introduce to them, you know, their their options and all, and we'd ask them point blank, you know, do you, has the debit card worked for you, or would you like to look at the debit card? I had some clients up front that just say, I don't want to give my employees access to that money. Uh, I want them to pay it out of their own pocket and then apply to me and get reimbursed. And I will tell you that uh, while that makes the CFO happy, um, it's less likely that the HR person uh, thinks that's a great idea. And in fact, I had one employer who converted over from that traditional reimbursement arrangement to a debit card. And we got a, a continually a high report year after year from their HR people saying, yeah, our people really like this. It's easy to use. They they take this out. It pays for the company. They don't have to worry about about you know forking out a you know two or three thousand dollars out of their pocket. The debit card takes care of it, and um, and it and it's just easier for the employees. And and remember, the whole point of this is that the employers, you know, are are putting benefits in here to to you know encourage and help their employees and and make them want to stay employees. You know, to to attract and retain good people. And so by putting a debit card in. Uh, it, it, it makes that just a little bit more attractive. Uh, again, there are some employers who, who say, uh, I don't want to do that, and, and that's their option. But I, I, I think as a general rule, they're becoming more acceptable. And remember, the other thing about debit cards is they've become a lot better. They've become smarter, if you would, over the last few years. I mean, now you've got debit cards that you, you try to, you know, you go into Target to pay for your prescription drug and you pick up some... Uh, you know, groceries here, and you try to put it on the same bill and pay with it with your debit card, and the debit card rejects the entire thing because you've got non-medical expenses on there, and it won't pay for that. And so, you know, somebody will say, oh, I, I shouldn't have done that. So they got to pay their uh, prescription drug with their debit card and then pay their groceries with their, uh, with their personal card. 
and and you know that causes some issues but that's what the cards are created to do so that we don't have abuse like that so there are pros and cons to that and and uh, and and you know i would say this if if you've got some you know individual questions about that uh, you know please give me a call and we can certainly chat about it but i i really can't provide you with a kind of a an industry wide survey that's gone on uh, i haven't done that myself that it Yes, those are the only questions that we've received for the day. So Okay, um, well, very good. Um, thanks. Okay, so I want to say, um, everyone, thank you for joining us. We're going to post this link to our um to this webinar on our website within the next 24 to 48 hours. You will also be receiving thank you emails from me, which will which will contain a link to the recording as well as the slides. Um, and of course, Dave, thank you so much for being so informative and for this amazing presentation. And of course, if you have any further questions, I myself am not the expert, but Mr. Dave Fear is. So please get in touch with him um, by email, phone, or whichever way technology works for you. Um, but that all being said, thank you so much, Dave, and thank you everyone and have a great day. Thanks again, folks. And uh, thank yeah, thanks, uh, folks. thanks, Dan, for your uh, participation as well. So. Thanks, everyone. Bye.